I was 19 years old and truly up for anything and everything, but the city was more intense than I ever imagined. I thought it was going to be like the movies. You know, you get off the bus, Gershwin is playing, you disappear into the human traffic, life on life's terms, learning and discovering the city. And it was kind of like that in Manhattan. But the Bronx is not Manhattan. I was constantly wandering into wrong neighborhoods and getting fucked with. It was obvious I was out of place, even on the Irish and Italian blogs. The best way to describe it is that I had no strut, no confidence. And it's crazy how that will show on you wherever you go in that city. And it was hot. One of the hottest summers on record. I, I had never been around concrete blacktop style heat like that. It seemed to radiate from every building and sidewalk and it felt impossible to get rid of even after cold showers. One really hot day, I tried to go to Harlem to visit my college, which didn't actually start for a few more weeks. I got off on the wrong train stop, and a small black kid of maybe 12 threw an empty can of soda at me and told me to get out. I wanted out. I wanted to go home. That night, as I sat in my room moping about my situation, I could hear the Bronx outside my window six floors down, bubbling with Friday night-style anticipation, honking horns, booming bass, kids yelling, the occasional two-fingered whistle. I managed to buy a small TV set, and I was bending the antenna to try to get the Yankee game to come in more clearly. Fuck them Yankees, Mr. Lewis said from my open door. Mets. <laughs> he walked over and placed a few CDs on my desk before sitting on the edge of my single-width bed. I could smell his aftershave as he removed a toothpick from his mouth and used it to point at the CDs. Jazz music, he said proudly. Real jazz music right there. Train. I picked them up, inspecting the covers. John Coltrane, man, go ahead, put that shit in. I put on the first CD and listened. A few measures in, I recognized the notes, but not the song. What is this? My favorite things in soprano, Mr. Lewis said, and pulled a tiny plastic bag from his pocket. Now, I knew immediately that it was cocaine. He started to open it. Then he paused and glanced upward at me, his eyes locking directly on mine to gauge my reaction. Now, I'd seen that pause and glance many times. It was an invite and a statement at the same time. In drug etiquette, that glance basically meant, I'm about to get high, and if you want some, I can share. If you don't, that's cool too. But either way, this stays right here. He dipped a door key into the white powder and brought it up to each nostril once. Then he passed me the baggie and I did the same. Now listen to the train said, locking his fingers behind his head and lying back on my mattress, his slipper lightly tapping on the floor. I leaned back in my chair, my head relaxing on the window seal. I, the drug made me numb like Novocaine or funny gas, but stronger, a tingling like a thousand feathers being poured over my face. Suddenly I could feel each thrust of my heart pump blood through my chest, down my arms, out to my fingertips. The music started to spiral. Coltrane, Coltrane began to run, and I could feel the night air of the Bronx coming through my window, smelling like street food and trash and car exhaust. For the first time in weeks, the anxiety of this new world went away, and I truly felt good. We stayed up most of the night getting high and listening to CDs. Mr. Lewis schooled me on jazz, and I impressed him with baseball knowledge that went back decades before I was born. He was the first friend I'd made in New York City. In the weeks that followed, we had more and more nights like this one. Mr. Lewis would bring over jazz CDs. We'd get high and just talk. He told me about growing up during the closing stages of the Harlem Renaissance and running the streets with a young hoodlum named Red. 
He seemed a little disappointed when I couldn't contextually figure out that he was talking about Malcolm X. He also told me about fighting in Vietnam, and I told him how my mother, a former civil rights worker, had been blacklisted for protesting that same war. I also heard about Mr. Lewis's first experience with jazz, sneaking into a club at 14 to see Charlie Parker. He had stories about all the jazz greats, Dizzy Gillespie, Count Basie, but his favorite was Monk. Thelonious Spear Monk from Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, he would tell me over and over. Monk, as some of you probably know, is this highly percussive jazz pianist with a crazy improv style that would incorporate these abrupt, dramatic stops into his play. His music was intense and complicated, and I simply did not get it. I don't think I have the ear for this, I told Mr. Lewis one day after getting particularly frustrated with Monk's music. Here's what I want you to do. First thing in the morning, now I'm talking the second you wake up. Don't turn on the TV, don't go piss, don't even roll over. First thing you wake up, put on Monk. And you just lay there and listen. Let it happen to you. Don't try to control it. You do that and you'll get this music. The next morning I tried it. I turned on Monk before my eyes were even open and he began to play. My brain was fresh and new. It wasn't clouded with the day and its pressures yet. And in that semi-dream state, I felt where Monk was taking me. I sensed his rhythms build and stop. His piano sounded brilliant. In the months that followed, summer in New York City turned to autumn in New York City. I began attending college and I was adjusting to life mostly because of the time I would spend with Mr. Lewis. He would take me to watch playground basketball in the South Bronx early on Saturday morning so we could get a spot right up close to the fence, see crossover dribbles that would break ankles. We visited the Apollo Theater during the day when it was completely dead and empty, and one of his friends who worked security gave us a tour. I saw the dressing areas and green rooms, and I got to stand on the stage alone and look out into the dark canyon of seats. And eventually, Mr. Lewis took me to a jazz club. He popped his head in my door early one Saturday afternoon and instructed me, tonight, 8.30, sharp. Then he smiled big. And Rob, wear a tie. We stepped into the club, and it was like walking into a black and white movie. The suits, the dresses, the martinis, it was old New York. I still feel this sometimes in Chicago when I go to places like the Green Mill, but this was the first time. We sat in a tiny table in front near a small blue-lit stage where a jazz trio played. The music was loud, and nobody in the crowd talked. Mr. Lewis ordered whiskeys, and he never stopped bopping and smiling. Between the first and second set, he spoke to me. I remember he referenced a famous quote by Art Blakey about how jazz couldn't exist anywhere but America. I could tell he was proud to indoctrinate me into this world, into jazz and into New York. He wanted me to feel what he felt at 14. He wanted to share that. And I think it was that, that uniquely human need to let me feel something he felt, to want to experience this thing together. I think that's what stays with me until today. Somehow, me sitting there brought the whole thing full circle for Mr. Lewis. Fast forward two years of my New York life with me. In that time, I began making student films and dating. My social life expanded, and I was indoctrinated into other things by other people. The underground club scene, warehouse parties, and eventually heroin. From time to time, I would see Mr. Lewis in our building, and he would smile, big as ever at first. But then as he looked at me more, his face would become concerned and his palm would rest on my shoulder. You got to slow it down, son. This here is a marathon, not a sprint. 
but I kept sprinting. When I finally ran out of gas, flunked out of school, and ended up in a rehab center, Mr. Lewis was the first person that visited me. I was sitting in a small TV room with a few other patients, and I could see him through a glass door talking to a young Latina nurse out in the corridor. I slid my feet into my plastic slippers, and I shuffled outside. I didn't know if I should hug him, but I did. I grabbed his wiry 60-year-old frame, dug my face into the shoulder of his t-shirt, and started to cry. He hugged me back, and I felt a slight fatherly guilt in that embrace. Hey, man, I heard him coo softly. Shit gonna be okay? Shit gonna be okay? I cried harder, and he repeated that statement over and over until I believed him. That was Bobby Badrisky. If his story gives you ideas for your own second story, we'd love to hear them. Join us for our annual Pride Show on June 20th at Hamburger Mary's in Andersonville, or at the Underground Wonder Bar on June 30th in Chicago's Gold Coast. For information on these or other performances, or information on how to get involved with Second Story, please visit our brand new website at secondstory.com. That's 2ndstory.com. This Second Story podcast was brought to you by Amanda Delheimer, Bobby Badrisky, Megan Steelstra, Sherry Pentamone, and Eric Hazen. I'm Ozzie Totten, and thanks for listening. <laughs>